You're listening to In Real Life. I'm Emily. And I'm Kimzilla. <laughs> and we've had a little bit of wine. <laughs> this has been a really fun session. It has been a really fun session. We are actually recording this post-interview. We're doing this backwards. 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 But we've um, got two interviews in, so you guys are locked in for the next two weeks. You've got two exciting least. episodes. Yeah, you're in for a treat. Yeah. Um, this episode this that episode. we're introducing right now that oh, you're yeah. about to hear as soon as we're done talking, um, which we're about to go edit and post to the podcast um i do remember how to pronounce his name thank you for like pointing to it Stan- it's Leo, i think Stanis- it's Stanislao. it's not Stanislaw, which is what i thought it was at first and who is this lovely well, Stanislaw? tonight Stanislao. i think it's Stanislao. i think that's what he said Stanislao. no i don't think it's leo because then there would wow. be e. Stanislao. Stanislao. i think we're going to talk to Officer Matt. Officer Matt of the Glen Rock Police Department. Mm-hmm. Um, who, very, very special conversation. Right. He's, who is not He's only, one of the good guys. He is one of the good guys. That was actually, so that was, that was maybe the best part that I got out of this was, was like, I feel like every time. You see a post about like a shitty situation with a shitty cop. And you think about shitty cops all the time and like you don't think about the good cops. It's actually really hard for me to believe some days, most days, that any of them out there are still good. Like I completely forget that there are people that actually want to do this to help and not just to like But this guy. But this guy? This guy. This guy is not only He's not only in it to do the day-to-day job. He's in it to change things. He's he's in it to change the system. He's in it to shake it up. And he's really working on, like, long-term making some deep systemic changes that are going to improve the way the police force interacts with each other and with the community overall, like, in the long term. Um, So, Yeah. And he's he's also he's in, an incredibly well educated individual. He has a master's degree from Columbia, and he's a childhood um, friend of our very own Greg Harrison, friend of the show, friend of the show, great WFMU illustrator extraordinaire, our former like our our first ever in real life marathon co-host actually yeah. and he's done um, so much artwork for us yeah. the website sort of the fmu resident and artist. he's a he's a pretty smart guy too so i'm surprised like there's a lot of smartness coming from that town apparently there's something in the water wherever yeah. they are that we need to bottle let's do it let's do it but for now let's just keep drinking this wine let's just keep drinking this wine for yeah. now this enjoy is the enjoy the episode enjoy enjoy officer matt uh, hi, everybody. My name is Matt Stanislao, and I've been a police officer for about 17 years, and I hold an advanced clinical degree from Columbia University. Well, that's great. Um, so uh, you work in a department. What? When did you start as a police officer? <clears throat> uh, I started actually working as a police officer in Booton Township back in 2002, and then I transferred to Glen Rock in 2004 about a year and a half later because there was a potential for a merge in the other agency and when there's a merging of services uh, positions are cut and it's usually the first people that were hired 
So uh, there was a sense of if I don't leave, there's a chance I'm going to lose my job there. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the opportunity to work in this other agency came up. It was closer to home. Mm. Um, and I said, I think I would probably work at, like, like to work in this community more. So I, I did the transfer. Yeah, it's it's. I used to live in Booton, so I know that's that's a big of a uh, it's a pretty big jump, you know, from right. from being out <laughs> in the country uh, to Glenrock is that, and that's in northern New Jersey, but more in like a suburban. Uh, right, there's many more people. Much more people. Yeah, and, and um, it's much more cosmopolitan in the sense that you're so much closer to New York City. You know, a lot of the professionals are commuting directly to New York from the trains, and it's you just get a, di a different sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, New Jersey obviously has a lot of subcultures, but there's definitely a difference between even, oh, yeah. you know, 30 minutes away from Morris County as opposed to Bergen County. And as I'll later mention, of course, New York City. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely different yeah. social scenes and cultural scenes and politics. Yeah. Yeah. So so then you moved um, to you. You switched over, transferred to Glenrock and. um how did you how was it when you when you first started there well i distinctly remember uh one of the first days i was there i saw a senior officer and didn't know who they were and i i, I stuck my hand out to say hi my name is matt stanislao i just got hired and he looks down at my hand and then walks away i at that point was stunned and not really sure how to handle that because I didn't know where it was coming from. Yeah. Um, and here I am trying to extend the olive branch, if you will, and um, it, it got totally chopped off. So I was like, okay, uh, I'm just going to remain quiet and kind of see what the lay of the land is. Yeah. Um, now, my father was also a police officer for, oh, God, like 27 years, and he warned me about things like this. He said, you know, Matt, when you see police officers that have been on the job for 15, 20, 25, 30 years and they're still police officers and the newest guy just gets on the job, they have the same title and rank as you. Oh. Even though they're paid a little bit more because they've been there longer, there's a sense of this who's replacing me. Sure. So, so that, was, yeah. that was kind of going through the back of my mind. Like, okay, this guy sees me as his replacement and maybe that's what it was. And then, you know, as things were kind of going on, you start to realize maybe it was something more because when, before you're hired, everybody in the department kind of gets a heads up of who they just hired. So it's like, oh, okay, well, we know that this guy that we just hired is from another town, and any rumors or anything that happened from that town is what obviously transfers over just from word of mouth. Okay. So everybody talks to each other, like within organizations. Everybody knows someone to ask Correct. about you behind the scenes. So typically those questions uh, revolve around the person's personal life, which yeah. is the very first. Oh, yeah. It's never like, oh, how many arrests did he make or how you know, many accolades did he obtain as an officer? It's, um, is he married? Where does he live? Um, and sometimes how old is he? I mean, those are the the major, I would say, uh, parts of somebody's uh, you know makeup, you know, development, where they would say that's the snapshot of this person. Mm -hmm. So when they heard he's living with another officer, uh, who oddly enough was just a friend, the assumption was 
that not only was I gay, but that um, um, I had a partner and um, who happens to also be a police officer, and he, that wasn't the case. But these assumptions are just what is made about you before you even walked into the door. And if you're not um, straight or what we consider uh, any form of just heterosexual, uh, that's a problem. Hmm. So you're already behind the eight ball on that. You have to recover and uh, essentially not out yourself in the way of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm gay, or, um, but the guy I'm living with isn't my partner. We're just friends. Because <laughs> it just it sounds like you're making excuses already. Right. So you say nothing. Um, so you heard these rumors that you were gay behind the scenes. Were there, were there people within the, the department that you could tell, or were you completely in the closet well, at this point? <laughs> Good question, and that's the, re that's, that's the paradox that you live. By asking the question to even those that you trust, you're outing yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, did people think I'm gay? You know, if you say that, um, the answer was already within the question. Yeah. Right. So you don't, and <laughs> I think the phrase goes something like, um, we know what the answers are, that's why we dare not ask the questions. Mm -hmm. So it, you leave it ambiguous with the hopes that somehow, at some point down the road, they'll either accept you from something that you've done heroically um, or just within the fabric of the agency where just over time, no matter what, you're inextricable to it, and then you're there. Um, and I was just hoping that it would just eventually happen over time, just based on time. And that didn't happen. <laughs> so, again, what's the time frame here? Like, what year is it? That was 2004 it's into crazy. 2005. It's crazy. I mean, because like, like you said, you're, you're in a suburb in New Jersey outside of a metropolitan city, one of the biggest cities in but the like world. Right outside of a giant metropolitan area. Where every, I mean, and you're not, we're not talking about the 90s. We're not talking about, a, a, you know. The Midwest. Or, the Midwest. Yeah. We're talking about, yeah, I mean, people encounter gay people all the time. So it's, well, is this it, very well, specific? Do, well, well, they do, but they may assume that the person is straight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I forgot what the sign was. It was for a moving company. It said something like, um, warning, the minute you leave Manhattan, you enter the United States. <laughs> and a lot is said in that message. Yeah. It really is. Because the minute you go over that bridge or under that tunnel, you might as well be in a different country. There's so much that's different. Yeah. You can't just walk down the street with, you know, hand in hand with somebody of the same gender or yeah. talk yeah. so freely about what you did with your partner that weekend. Everything is left ambiguous. Right. Yeah. And um, you have to do that because to have the privilege of talking about your personal life, even if it was just going to the grocery store to pick up things for, for a dinner that you made that night for the person you love, you're exposing yourself to discrimination. So in order to not expose yourself to discrimination, you were silenced. And that's, I mean, when people say, oh, is there really this thing called heterosexual privilege? It would kind of fall under that where they can speak so freely about anything in their life. Yeah, that's so um, true. It, it, it's like the air you breathe. You don't know it's there until it's taken away. Mm -hmm. Right. Where, like, we can so easily, you know, if someone's talking about, oh, I do... You know, I'm a I'm a painter, and it's like, oh, my my partner is a painter. Like even like really yeah. little connections that you can make like that, yeah. um, you 
you have to like you're prevented from making any kind of like conversational Correct. connection that yeah and one of the my mom's gay and one of the things she said is that like you get in the habit of just saying they all the time like referring to your the people you date as they i don't know mm. if that's something you had the experience of but that oh, was playing her, like pronoun games yeah yeah mm-hmm. she was just like oh you know, uh, or I, that person yeah uh it got to that point where we start once in a while some of the officers that work i was becoming more comfortable with uh divulging things about my personal life we would almost make a joke out of it in that it was deliberately left ambiguous so um they, you know one person in particular would say like oh matt how was your weekend I said, oh, i went on a date oh really well how was your date with that person Oh, the date with that person went really nice. Oh, so they were almost protecting you in the way that they were not going to call they, it out either. It's very tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know what you're saying. You know what you're saying. Everybody knows. Yeah. But this was my way of kind of breaking the ice to them to say, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to kind of play with this issue of the fact that I have to kind of navigate this culture in this way yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. I can't say that same joke to another officer because they didn't present it to me in the same way. Right. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear f- terms like, you know, uh, systemic or institutionalized homophobia within law enforcement. Sounds very daunting or very, um, you know, just a terrible, terrible atmosphere. And I can't say it was that. Um, if anything, it was just heteronormativity um, run amok. So, uh, which is definitely connected to homophobia, but when you say institutionalized homophobia, it sounds like everybody's in on it, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, and that's just not true. So it was specific people. Yeah, it, it, some people just they have problems, and oftentimes it's not even with the officer; it's with themselves. Yeah. And um, as I'm talking to you now, uh, it's very similar to how I would talk to anybody else. I'm very a matter of fact. Um, I, I, I kind of speak in terms that um, would hopefully allow the person to feel comfortable talking to me. Um, and for those who are not comfortable with themselves, and there's many police officers that aren't, that's a threat. Mm-hmm. Because they use brawn or their bravado to, or bravado to um, kind of make you feel uncomfortable. And when that doesn't work, they have nothing else to fall back on. Um, so in that sense, it, it, I was intimidating, I think, to some of the officers who were anticipating kind of scaring me off. And then when I wasn't scared off, uh, things kind of got worse. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of the opposite of what, you know, our parents always tell her. Like, you need to stand up to the bully and then they'll know that you mean business and they'll leave you alone. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, picking and choosing your battles is definitely <laughs> uh, perhaps mm-hmm. more true. Um, yes, uh, you, you definitely want to stand your ground uh, when necessary, uh, but you're already in check when you are uh, a minority in any, any sense. I'll even throw in um, you know, women to this group mm-hmm. because oftentimes they feel like, well, if you're in a male-dominated profession, um, you do have to somehow prove yourself. You know, because the assumption is that the male that's white, that's straight, is automatically going to be able to do this work because they've been doing it for so many years. Yeah. You know, so, and, and, and yeah. these movements, cultural, these cultural movements, um, they move incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they say the movement has happened when on a subcultural level or something that's, you know, very small, it's 
almost barely moved uh, at all. Sometimes that actually goes in the reverse order, where the minute there's some type of movement, whether it be an additional right that's provided to them, uh, the ones who are uh, against it, they, they harden their stance. Mm. And they actually, so it gets worse. Yeah. You know, if you don't stay in your lot in life, you're going to have more problems. So just stay there. (laughs) And many do. And many, many do. Can you talk about, like, an example of um, something that you went through at the the department? Um, Okay, well, remember I said I was hired in 2004? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I got fired in 2005 on my cell phone. You got fired via a text, like a, on your cell phone? What do you mean? Like the chief calls me and says, you're fired, don't come back. And I'm like, I'm on vacation. I'm going to Europe. I'm on a plane. He goes, well, I've made this decision, and um, you're fired. Hey, now, <laughs> the grounds were that I was a uh, probationary employee. And when you're a probationary employee, they can essentially fire at will. However, I was not probationary. Now, you remember when I said that I was an officer in another department before going to Glenrock? Right, yeah. yeah. When you transfer to another police department, your tenure transfers with you. The only way that they would have been able to fire at will after the first year of employment would be if they were to hire you again under what's considered a new ORI number. And that's where they put you back into a police academy and um, have the ability to then if it's not working out, terminate your employment. Well, they wanted it both ways. They wanted to not have to retrain me, save the money in getting me as a free transfer, but still have the option to terminate me if they didn't like me. Mm. So I had to file a lawsuit then, and I won, and I got my job back in less than a month and a half. So Total, total disaster. Because what that showed to the middle management was, we have to now figure out another way to get this guy out. And And that laid the foundation for the next 10 years of my experience working there because that middle management inevitably became the next bosses. Yeah, like how do you go back after having a lawsuit where you obviously had a lot of evidence to be able to support your situation and your case um, and then go back to work and the same terrible people are, are there that that can... That just fired you. Yeah. That just wanted to fire you. Yeah. Well, but... (laughs) I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of person. <laughs> you must be. Um, or, or maybe a fourth full. <laughs> um, it's, um, there, there is good. There is good officers. There is people who, there that um, I felt was worth still working with. And um, the other thing is when you, when you try to walk away and let's say, all right, forget it. I'm going to sue and I'm not going to get my job back in here. Who wants to work in a place like this? There was something inside me that said, no, it shouldn't be this way, where these people who don't like me for a discriminatory purpose are going to be able to just do this. The town gets hosed through you know, some major uh, cash out, and these guys still remain in power. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't do anything for the community I'm trying to provide service to, and nor does it to the reason why I went into the profession, which yeah. is for you know altruistic purposes to try to make a difference in some way. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to just say, "All right, I'm going to cut the check and leave and find something else to do with my life." I just that wasn't in me. So I, I said, "Let me give it another shot by you know seeing what's going to happen after I went back," and it, it kind of quieted down. Did people just avoid you? I mean, were they yeah, afraid? They, yeah, they relearn and they, they try to kind of see what the lay of the land is. 
and um, or maybe they have other other people that they want to kind of uh, uh, mind or, or go after for the meantime, and then they'll we'll get back to you later. It's kind of like that. Um, and then when they get back to you later, for whatever the reason that it is, um, they handle in that way. Uh, just taking a step backward, one of the things that um, kind of like is like a, a striking like that happened. Uh, a month before I was terminated in 2005, I did one of the worst things you could possibly do uh, when an employer is trying to get rid of you. And I ended up saving two people's lives. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Um, That's so it, inconvenient. Yeah. How are they like, going to spin this? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was like it was a major electrical storm, and people were drowning uh, underneath an underpass. And I somehow just wrapped my leg around the top of the embankment area and pulled these people out with one arm. And... The, the, and there's water rushing into the car, and I'm thinking, today I'm probably going to die, but this is what I signed up for. And while this is happening, somebody in my agency witnesses it, and he's like, oh, my God, Slayo is going to save these two people's lives right in front of my face. <laughs> this is also in front of the rescue squad building, and they catch wind of it. Long story short, that gets into the newspaper. Yes. They're infuriated. <laughs> Because <laughs> many officers who have been on the job for 10, 20, 30 years never have an opportunity to save somebody's life. They would if they were presented the opportunity, but they just never were. Mm. So here's this guy. Just gets hired. They don't really like him. He's pretty gay. And he <laughs> saves two people. This is just not part of our narrative. Yeah, this is not going to help our lawsuit, like, like to tamp down this lawsuit at all. <laughs> right. And so... Um, at that point, I was thinking, no, there's, there's got to be a better. I'm not going to let these people beat me down, or you know, fine. You don't want to give me a reward for doing this, which I wasn't looking for. The least you could do is not fire me, but they still did. And then when they ended up retiring and the new regime came in, I said, well, that was that. But the problem is when you have um, administrators that kind of act in that way, um, that culture bleeds down. Yeah, and to, to wait for that to eventually get out of its system does take uh, probably a generation because to think it just flips the switch the minute a new generation comes in or a new regime uh, you know gets into office would be very foolish. Especially you know? in, in the police department where there's a lot of nepotism, right? So you have the people that were raised by the guys that are calling you these things, right? right? <laughs> Nepotism can also, yeah, also rear its ugly head from time to time. <laughs> and it's like, they want to pick and choose the winners. So when a winner is chosen in this regard, it's frustrating because it's like, no, 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 I'm the winner. I need to show the community that I'm the one that should be trusted and, you know, beloved and not you. Mm -hmm. So there is some jealousy and animosity that constantly runs through the agencies. And I think that would happen in all departments. Uh, where there's um, life savings that happen. Because a lot of times it is literally just a, a luck of the draw if you're ever presented the opportunity. I just thought that if anything, if anything, it would de-radicalize me um, or neutralize these enemies and say, all right, so the guy's not a wuss. Um, and it still wasn't enough. <laughs> no matter how many lives I saved or no matter what I did, if they want you, they're going to get you. And they tried, but um, I put in the lawsuit on the fourth day when I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean via satellite. <laughs> and um, because if you don't respond in 10 days, your your lawsuit is oh. kind of squashed. And they were anticipating, I think, 
that um, I wouldn't have been able to respond. And by the time I returned back, it would have been too late. Oh, my God. You're so smart. I mean, you must have been also documenting a lot to be able to kind of go. I really, I I wasn't. I was just trying to do my job. (laughs) But when I told my original attorney, like, that's what happened, he goes, wait a minute. He called you on your cell phone to do that? And I said, yeah, can you help me? He goes, yeah, Matt, don't worry. I'll put in the lawsuit. You're going to get your job back. Enjoy your vacation. Wow. And it's kind of hard to do that. But yeah. you, do it, you do the best you can. Yeah. So that was round one. And then years later, we, uh, you know, there, was, there was round two, which obviously is what then transpired. Right. <clears throat> well, let's talk about round two. <laughs> <laughs> what happened sort of like immediately leading so, up to that? <laughs> so, all right. So, um it, it, it's it's complicated in the sense that um, you have to kind of figure out at what point you say enough is enough. Um, many police departments uh, go through what's called an accreditation process, and this is a way that they reach a higher standard and get a lower insurance premium. If you reach it, it saves the town money. However, there's the very first year of an accreditation process is very challenging because they have to draw back to see if there's anything that's latent. And um, if there is those things that are latent, they're supposed to be brought to the surface and managed as, as they are. And um, when you talk to a, an administrator and they're looking at you in the eyes and they're saying, you don't have any problems here, do you? You're getting the answer before you a- ask it or before it's answered. You know what I mean? Yeah, the answer So there's a the sense question. of intimidation. Like if you, if you answer this any other way, we're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I, I never had a problem here. But the problem was somebody else knew that I did have a problem, and that was the whistleblower in the case. And um, he said, yeah, the reason why Matt's not coming forth with the complaint because he fears retaliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, he's being harassed. And it's in a very sophisticated way in which they're going around and making his life more difficult, uh, attacking support networks, telling him not to cooperate. Oh. Um, and eventually that's scary. Just that's like a life or death situation, especially as a police officer, if you can't, you know, rely on, you know, people like support systems and partners well, and things like that. Just, I mean, how it, is it applied to real time, like what you were doing in your job? It, it, again, it's, it's, it, it's like being killed by a million cuts. You know, it's, it, they're just trying to say, like, maybe we could just wear this guy down. And um, I, just said, I just said, no, that's not going to happen. And I said, the, I said, hopefully something will happen where the, this story will see the light of day. But really, I don't care. I just want to have my job and, and work, you know. So the whistleblower says what happened. And then at that point, I'm put in a position where I have to say, look, there's somebody that came forth and said that the reason why you're not com- coming in and complaining is because you're fearing retaliation. Is that true? And I said, well, because you feel like somebody's harassing you. I said, well, okay. I'm not going to tell you if I'm being harassed because if I'm wrong, I do fear that retaliation. But this has been my experience. And I had a few things that were documented, not just by things that I was documented, but things that um, the school system was telling me, of, like uh, principals and uh, of the sort. They're saying like, oh, well, we were told not to set this up for you or we're not going to set up any type of presentations for you. And I said, but this is a, a state law. Like, you have to do prevention programs in your schools. This isn't an option. Yeah, God, it and, went that um, far that they were, like, telling 
telling I, other like departments and other yeah, support, other support networks so to basically turn ins- away. Wow. So at that point, I pointed out the laws stating like this isn't an option. You have to choose a law enforcement officer to teach these programs. It's to provide a nexus between the community, the police department, and the school system. It's it's made to help prevent. It's not like you can hire a private entity to do the work because you know that's your best friend. Um, so once I did that, uh, one of the uh, counselors in the school says, "Is it true?" that Officer Stanislao has to do this work, or at least an officer has to do it, because of this law. And at that point, there was a real, somebody relented, texted or emailed her back and said something like, yeah, this is actually the law he's referring to. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, after telling me, we're not interested, we don't have time, and scram, to we'll see you uh, on this date at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm like, well, what was that about? Like, how did, where did this reversal come from? Because I wasn't privy to any of that information. Mm-hmm. And I found out later um, where that, how that, how that would eventually changed and what made them change their tune. Uh, because my attorney did a, um, a forensic account of the email server of the police department and the, and the town, and he siphoned through. When I see thousands and thousands of emails, I am not kidding. And when he saw this one conversation, it's like literally finding a needle in a haystack. He goes, oh, my God, we have a little conspiracy here. What else is this? <laughs> so at that point, there was more movement. And I pull it off. And all of a sudden, they go from all this resistance to pulling it, pu- pushing it for, full, for, full throttle. And I do the presentations, and I pull them off. And they were successful. And like a slow clap in the back, the administration goes, Congratulations. So it's like, all right, now it's on. Yeah. You know, it's like they put all these barriers in the way, trying to make sure that you fail or quit. And if you still get around them, they don't say, you know what, let's give the boy a chance. No, they're like, no, now we're going to really go after him. Wow. So when I say that um, I aged quite a bit, my hair got kind of (laughs) gray during that time, um... It really helped me kind of dig into what type of wells of strength were really in there. You know, I was really preparing for this day because they were preparing me. I knew, like, I'm like, I don't know if they're gonna if they really want to wage a war here, but um, I I got a lot in me. Do you have a so. friend support network? Are you do you are you partnered with anybody at this point? Like, how are you yeah, yeah, dealing yeah. with had, this mentally? Yeah, I, <laughs> Well, oddly enough, my, my partner, who's now my husband, uh, is an attorney. Oh, so, that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, and he was telling me the, the exact opposite. Why don't you just quit this? You don't need this. You know, mm-hmm. it's frustrating you. It's, it's, it's ruining our relationship. And many times it was, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, so, and I said, this is my life. You know, I'm not going to, and I was pit against either my professional life or my, or my personal life, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point I said, no, I'm not going to give this up. I'm, I'm better than that. And he goes, I don't think you know what you're messing with. Like when they say you can't fight city hall, this is what you're about to face. Like they're going to do everything they can to make sure they win this. And he said, just, just quit it. You know, we could live on, you know, on just on my means and you can find another work. I said, I'm not throwing away like 14 years of my career. Hmm. 
So back and there and wasn't an that. option, not that I would do this, but um, th- there wasn't an option to transfer to like another That's department. That's another problem. That's another problem because when you're transferring to another agency, this guy says, why is he in this department for like well over 10 years and it's trying to lateral out? Mm. And the other thing is you're going from top step to bottom step because no matter when you transfer, there's a likelihood that you're going to start at their lowest step, which is like 30 grand a year. Mm. And I, I couldn't afford that. I had a mortgage. You know, I had a life that was not going to be able to afford that type of means. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you so, buckle up. <laughs> so, um, so you know, you, you, it's frustrating because, you know, the support networks that you're supposed to have aren't there or that they're, they're doing the reverse. They're actually saying just quit or just move on. You it's know, we'll, we'll get through this. And yeah. uh, and I said, no, 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 there, there's something more here. That, that I, I don't want to quit, but it, it, and it's not because I just want to provide service. It's just like I have a feeling that this would happen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, if this can happen to me, it could definitely happen to anybody else. Right. So um, I had a uh, – so the, to kind of push everything down and to say that I was – you know, not a good employee was difficult for them to do at that point because they didn't have the card of or your probationary. Instead, they started saying things that I was insubordinate or not cooperating in an investigation. So if that was the case, they could try to, well, they try to develop evidence by saying that you're not cooperating or that you're not signing documents oh. or that you're not essentially being strong-armed to do what they want. Mm-hmm. And if you're not an internal affairs officer... This is an issue because if the internal affairs officer, who's literally the gatekeeper between what cases go forth and back, you know, they, they can play games. And this is a paradox within the law enforcement profession because if there is any form of corruption that is happening within an agency, it would happen at that point. And the oversight to an internal affairs unit is your chief of police. And the oversight to the chief of police is supposed to be a prosecutor's office, the attorney general, um, but sometimes they're so busy doing major crimes that the least that they're going to be handling is harassment issues in a police department. Mm, right. So they don't have the time for that. So you're, you, so there's essentially no oversight, or there could be very little. Yeah. And um, what would be believable um, is, a, is the other thing. It's like, do, you, do people, and this is actually at the same time that marriage equality started passing, so we're like, people are in general are going to think this doesn't happen anymore because... LGBT community can now get married. Right. Discrimination is now over. Yeah. So this is probably gonna, his his case is probably going to be untrue just based on this broader implication that harassment doesn't happen in New Jersey because uh, they're able to marry each other now, and that also played a factor into the in, into my decision process. Like, will this be believable? And uh, just based on that alone, because many people think that the minute you get things like the fall of Don't Ask, Don't Tell or you know, marriage equality, that discrimination is no longer. And not that there's these more covert ways of discrimination that all of a sudden like, just stay latent. You know? yeah. I mean, no one's spray painting names on your locker anymore, but they're doing these other things around it you know, that are much more difficult to prove. Yeah, yeah. But I had enough of those things where my attorney's like, you know, you're the only client I ever had that every single complaint that you had in your lawsuit was substantiated, <laughs> plus more. It's because you but know you, how to, yeah, I mean, from a police officer perspective, I mean, it's, right? I mean, you're, you're filling out reports with just facts. I mean, you don't put in any any just assumptions. The just, the, <laughs> just the facts. Just, just the facts, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know how to document. Yeah. 
Right, and also the 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 towns, you know, the invest trust in their police agencies to do the right thing. Um, but of course, that also kind of has influenced by nepotism, and some people think, well, there's nobody watching over me. I mean, is there any other profession where the person that hires you will inevitably have power over the the employer? Like, if I was to be a, made a, a police chief by a mayor, the minute I'm made chief, I actually have investigative power over the mayor, or they don't have investigative power over me, because that's not the way the system is set up. Right. So how are they to tell or know when something is not right? They don't. And oftentimes, when they do find it out, it's at the very last part of, uh, of litigation and civil litigation. That's why it's so expensive. Mm. But the insurance companies know this, and this is why they have so many uh, policies that they wrap up into like bundles, I guess, if you will, mm. um, to know that, all right, there is always a, a percentage of these that are likely going to remain, or they're, they're going to be litigated. They know that. And as long as it stays under a certain amount, they still make money. Wow. At the end of the day, it all comes down to that. Yeah. So, but my attorney the entire way is like, just let him have his job back and this could be a lot cheaper. And they were misled. The town was misled and saying, no, no, we're not letting him back. There's problems here. But how do they know or don't know that? And we can provide as much evidence as possible if they decide to review it. And then obviously other things transpired. One of the officers was arrested. And the, one of the officers that was arrested for uh, child endangerment and selling guns mm. was named in my complaint selling six months guns. prior. Hmm. So the question is, well, why would they not have listened to Matt's complaint? Or what happened with this other guy that <laughs> ended up getting arrested that happened to be mentioned in it? Because it's like, well, if they actually looked at it, would the would that guy's arrest even have happened? Or would they have started to investigate you know, what's happening ahead of time? Uh, and that's just a question I'm just going to leave out there because it, it's like, it's not that I told you so, but it's not like I'm throwing things against the wall because mm -hmm. you're adding to what I threw. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like I have you're a crystal ball themselves. here. And I would say, you know, by the way, in six months, you know, you're going to have major problems. So that's when it started to, it said, oh, great, now this guy's arrest or what's happening now is going to substantiate my claim. And I thought at that point, the town would have been like, okay, let's let him back. There's clearly problems here. Nope. Instead, they um, tried to pair me with the person that was arrested in a, oh, no. uh, and say You're that, kidding. oh, they're both bad. <laughs> let's put the I'm bad like, seeds together. Are, like it was a false equivalent. <laughs> it wasn't even. I don't even say it's even near an equivalent. No. But they tried to, right. So I'm like, and my attorney goes, "Yeah, I was expecting that one." And really? I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> <laughs> oh. So at that time, I goes, "That does it." So uh, he goes, "Well, what are you going to do, Matt?" I'm like, "We're going to fight this." <laughs> like I'm like, and he's like, "Right on." And that's when I applied to Columbia University, and that was my story getting into the school. Ooh, because chapter um, three, yeah. So it's like you go in and they, getting into a school like that is very intimidating because they ask you like one question. It's like, why should we let you in? Yeah. And it's like, oh god. All right, let me tell you a story. <laughs> and I got accepted. And and I when I say I was at one of the lowest points of my life, right at that point I was because I was really, I had nobody. I mean, even my partner was like really just saying just walk away just walk away my family is like how did you get yourself involved in this 
friends in the community were like, I don't know, Matt. And these are people that they were saying, like, I would, you know, I was babysitting your kids and stuff like that. And they're like, we don't know you. So you have absolutely nobody to, to, to back you when the chips are down or when it's not a sunny day. And the only person you end up uh, being, you know, where you, you can latch to is your attorney. Yeah. You know, and you have to entrust everything that they're doing. So, and also, you know, I'm sure also, I mean, they get paid to kind of right. agree yeah, with I'm you pay, moving them forward. To yeah. Right, I'm paying <laughs> them to care. Right, exactly. And is this just because, like, your friends and and family or whoever doesn't want to make enemies with the police department? Uh, exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it all of a sudden starts to bubble up into the county level the minute, you know, people are either getting arrested or losing their jobs or all of a sudden there's a retirement. And it's, and it's like, why is all this happening? And before you know it, it's like, well, now superior court judges have to make determinations. And who are they appointed by? Oh, they're appointed by, oh, nonetheless, then Chris Christie. And now we're starting, and this is back in the day when, they were, like, when he was in the news with the Bridgegate stuff. Right. And before you know it, you're starting to, you know, not rub elbows with issues on a federal level, but it's the same people all of a sudden. So you go from local podunk town, New Jersey, to the f- people at a federal government level, you know, and that also is like, I just want my job back. I don't want to go to trial. I don't want any of this. I, I, I just want to have a life that I could provide service to. Yeah. So um, got into Columbia. That was a real saving grace because, I mean, even the uh, even my friends are like, you really? You have all these failures and you want to set yourself up for another? What? So, um, you need new I had friends. A... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, great, thanks, friends. I said, well, I have a backup plan. Like, what's your backup plan? And I said, well, I also applied to Teachers College at Columbia as well. I ended up getting into both schools. Nice. Um, and I was going to do a double major, and the dean of uh, Teachers College calls me, and he goes, do you also go to uh, social, uh, Columbia School of Social Work? I said, yeah, I got accepted there as well. I'm going to do a, du- a dual master's. They said, no, you're not. Um, I don't care how smart you think you are. Um, do the social work one. It's much more intense. It has a licensure attached to it, and I have a feeling you're going to get the most out of that program anyway. If you want to do um, a psych uh, master's after that, you know, we'll defer your uh, acceptance. Uh, but you're not doing these both at the same time. There's no way. So, And he was right. <laughs> um, so I, I did uh, Columbia School of Social Work, their clinical track, very intense program, um, but I was so revved up with everything that I was going through that, oddly enough, I kind of used that to propel myself into the program. Um, and I don't think I would have had that but for been wrongfully terminated and going through that, which is very strange if mm-hmm. you think about it. But I never would have pushed myself for that, never. If you told me, you know, two years prior, by the way, you're going to go to uh, an Ivy League school to get an advanced clinical degree, um, because you got terminated, I'd be like, "All right, you're on something." But that's what happened. That's that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you so, get this. So so, what do you do with this now? This social work work degree. So there's four tracks that you could take. Uh, you could do policy, which is actually the original reason that I went into. I was like, "This should never happen on a policy level." And there's got to be a better way. And then when I was doing clinical work um, in schools uh, with children that were at risk, I'm like, oh, this is really a passion of mine, just trying to do some aftercare work and making sure kids don't fall through the cracks of the systems and stuff like that. 
and my supervisors would recognize my abilities and saying, please, Matt, do clinical. Stay on a clinical track. This is, we need people like you. You feel the work. Like, I went to school, and I, some of them are absolutely brilliant. They've been to, they have multiple degrees, and some have, you know, PhDs and doctorates and a variety of things. They say, I know the work because I'm educated in it, but you feel the work. And there's a difference. And I personally believe that the feelers in this profession are the ones that do the best. So you've got it. So just stick with it. So um, I I took that to heart, and I, I I said they're right. I do feel it. I do I do have a passion for it, and I did that instead. So um, what I do now <clears throat> is once you once you sit for the board, once you pass uh, graduate school at Columbia or any uh, MSW program, uh, if you did a clinical track, they see how many clinical classes you took and the inter- internships that you were um, involved with, and then you could sit for the boards. And even going to Columbia, there's a, there's a percentage of people that don't pass it the first time uh, because sometimes you'll overthink a question, and it's a very, very, very long exam. And it's like pass or fail. If you pass, they tell you how you pass, but if you fail, they don't tell you how much you failed by, which is, you know, it's like how close was I, you know. So um, I took the exam actually just before I graduated, and I passed. And that was just another thing to just kind of launch me into, uh, you know, what was possible. So then I get my job back, and when you're out for two years, you have to go back into a police training academy in order, because you've been out for so long. At a completely different age as everybody else, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm twice the age. I'm like like 36. Some of these people are 18. So, or 37, whatever. Yeah, twice. So (laughs) I call up the police chief of the academy, and I tell him my circumstances. I've been out for a couple, two and a half years. Um, he must I, know your history and record. Well, he, he's told this, but this is where this, it's just like you can't make this up. So um, I said, look, I, I don't understand why I would have to go through an entire police academy. He goes, well, look, there's been some major changes within criminal justice reform. A lot of our programming is now social-based, and we're, we're trying to teach uh, our newest police officers um, to have a more social-based lens to the profession. Um, and to consider mental health uh, as an aspect of it. And when we go to calls where we need to do de-escalation techniques and um, our, our verbal skills. And I said, oh, that's interesting you mentioned that because I, I just got a, uh, a master's in social work from Columbia and I'm licensed as a uh, mental health practitioner in New Jersey. And he goes, excuse me? <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, he goes, all right, look, um, I'm going to have to call you back, but um, you're coming here, right? I said, well, yeah, my chief is ordering me to. I have to get, you know, whatever paperwork in order. He goes, oh, no, no, you're not coming back here as a recruit. You're coming back here as an instructor. Nice. So oh. uh, he goes, we have almost 3,000 officers that have to be taught before January 1st. <sighs> and I taught every single one of them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what a way to change the culture. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a coincidence. Um so I am, I'm a lead instructor, and I still am today, where I, uh, I talk not only through uh, the perspective of a law enforcement officer, but also as somebody who is a licensed social worker. Uh, because oftentimes they would have to do these lectures with two people, and it's very different to have that kind of going back and forth because you need like a dynamic between the instructors, and it's, it's teaching police officers is not easy. <laughs> so, and if you're not a cop, they don't, you're already behind the eight ball. Yeah. But if you are an officer 
and you are able to provide this additional service, they tend to listen a little bit more. You know. Sure. Can I ask a, a personal question here? Uh, are you are you out of the closet at this point as an instructor? Uh, oh, as an instructor, no, actually, because I don't. The, I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the lectures that I teach are uh, more for mental health related issues. Um, if I talk about you know the causes for mental illness, uh, once in a while things culturally will come up. Um, I've also taught uh, cultural diversity lectures, uh, which is. Um, also something where you know, we, we take a, a swipe at heteronormativity, um, understanding of gender, but it's like you know, maybe a small fraction of a percentage of what the lecture is. Um, but there's, not a necess- and there's nothing necessary to come out. You know, you're, you're just teaching. Mm-hmm. So, and they honestly don't know and don't care one way or another because they have to do this for a state requirement. Mm. You know? yeah. But there has been a significant push for this type of reform where officers are being taught uh, to take a second look at uh, the way a call is being handled because there's a difference between when something is criminal justice and when it's mental health. So if it's, you know, a crime or if it's a mental health crisis, that difference, um, New Jersey is really pulling apart because there is margin of time in which the officer has to make a decision how they handle the call. And that margin is what I teach. Wow. How do you feel that the culture is now within the department? Oh, it's, it's considerably different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have officers that are really, they, you know, they are there for, I, I would say, for the right reasons. I mean, they always were, but they, you know, if you have a little click or something and they kind of get used to it, that happens. Mm-hmm. And I can go on and on about hierarchical structures and how they eventually kind of lean towards tyranny and you have to kind of watch that and all that but in general this is so much different um when i say that you know they want to support everything that uh would help the community i wholeheartedly mean that like they really don't just want to say it to hit the base Mm -hmm. they want to make sure that they're doing everything possible to provide service um and even aftercare because they know that even if i'm not the officer to do it because I'm working as an officer, they know that they have somebody in the agency that will direct them to the right people. Hmm. And you're still with uh, the Glen Rock Police Department? I'm still there, yes. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's yeah. Cool. The funnier thing is I run into people, like, like I used to be a dare officer, and I taught these kids, maybe they're not kids anymore, but when the last time I saw them was when they were in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Now they're coming back and they're like their junior year of high school, hmm. or I'm sorry, junior year of college, and they'll see me. Um, and they're like, hey, Officer Matt. And I'm like, I don't know who this person is, but <laughs> they knew who I was because, I, I don't know, I guess you don't change as much between the ages of uh, 27 and 37, yeah. but you do between the ages of 10 and 20. Sure. <laughs> I still remember my D.A.R.E. officer's name was Amy Savage. See what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> when I was in fifth yeah. grade. <laughs> and so I, would, oddly, I remember what she looks like. <laughs> yeah. And oddly enough, um, even though the D.A.R.E. program, is, you know, they, they say, like, oh, it's not effective, uh, for my research, what really shows is the emotional connection that you make with people tends to be the most reparative work. And um, that's what the program kind of offers, or any type of program where they have the police department trying to work with schools, where you're just developing a level of trust uh, between what you think is an authority figure and is an authority figure, but also as a protector and somebody there to provide help for you when you are in need. That's what's really need to be highlighted and underscored, because 
everything else that a child or an, an adult, for that matter, they're exposed to is not usually positive when it comes to law enforcement. So you, know, you need to balance this equation, and that's our, our department right now is making sure that that's done every, every which way we can. Oh, that's fantastic. So that... I'm That's so glad that you're in, in you're you're responsible for making the whole next generation of police officers. You yeah. Have. Ironically, when I teach that when I teach in the police academies, I had officers and even recruits come up to me and they say, "What degree did you get? You know, where did you go?" And I say, "They say I want to do what you do." Mm. And it, that's really nice because you feel like you've inspired people to want more out of their life and and to do the more than just you know be an officer and you know, which there's nothing obviously wrong to doing just law enforcement. But if you know there's a passion that uh, has been evoked based on something that you've learned, no matter what it is, it's, it feels good. Yeah. 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 So. Now, did I get this fact correctly that uh, you have uh, a friend in a high place here? Uh, your friendship with Barney Frank. Oh, guys. Yeah, that was. <laughs> the, 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 talk about coincidences and like you can't make this up. And maybe if you could just explain, because it's, right, a, it's a New York name, but maybe for, for... Here's what happened. Here's what happened. All right. I'm down in Orlando uh, doing work with um, survivors of PTSD. And, um, I'm, uh, and I'm working with a friend of mine, Sam Bernard. He's a PhD. And uh, we're just cycling through a, a variety of people in the community. And it just happened to be that Barney Frank was... Uh, staying at the same hotel that I was. So I run into him. I say, hey, huge fan. Um, my name is Matt. Um, uh, I'm actually a, pol- um, I'm a former police officer. I'm down here doing some clinical work uh, with Columbia. And um, uh, it's just a pleasure to meet you. You're, you're, you're an inspiration. So I told him briefly my story. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to watch your story. And I said, Okay. I mean, that's a, it's a nice thing to say to people, but you don't think they're actually going to do that. Yeah. So I give him my card, and uh, I say, you know, all right, thanks, nice meeting you. Um, you know, keep up uh, your advocacy work. You know, greatly appreciated. Well, what do you know? The guy calls me back, like ten months later, wow. once my story breaks in LGBT nation, because I think he reads that kind of regularly along with the New York Times. Wow. Um, but he reads the, how it broke an LGBT nation, and he says he finds my card, calls me back, and it literally it was like this. Matt, it's Barney. <laughs> and I go, um, Congressman Frank? He goes, yeah, yeah, Barney, Yeah, is it true that you got your job back? I said, yeah. He goes, you didn't just take it and then you're going to leave? I said, no, I'm taking it and I'm staying. He goes, that's a story. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, actually, it gets a little bit better. He goes, how so? I said, well, June 1st uh, commemorates uh, Gay Pride Month or Pride Month, and they're going to raise the pride flag in front of police headquarters uh, across the street what? at the park. And he goes, in New Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah. So he goes, you know I'm born and raised in Jersey, right? I'm like, yeah, Bayonne, right? And we were starting, I said, my family's from Bayonne. We started going back and forth with that. And he goes, I'm going to be there. I said, what? He goes, I have to be in New York City that day, but I'm going to do everything I, I can to be there. And I, here I am again. I'm like, all right, I appreciate that. That's an incredibly generous offer. I know you're a very busy man. I'm a police officer here working in New Jersey, okay? I'm literally talking to the Martin Luther King of the gay rights movement. So um, 
I don't say much to the police department because I didn't assume that he was going to be there. And, you know, that's it. what are the chances? What do you know? He pulls it off. And in the middle of the ceremony, he rides up in a limo and he gets out like, hello, everybody. <laughs> like, very, very minimal security. My police department's like, what? Because you have some dignitaries there, but they're like local officials. Yeah, sure. It's like having like yeah. a council person, a mayor. And now like one step down from the president of the United States is here. You know, something like that. <laughs> so the direction of that whole conversation went from congratulations to Officer Matt. They're like, who's Matt? <laughs> Congressman <laughs> Frank. And I literally like I had reporters like pushing me out of the way. Like, get out of the way. Get out of the way. Barney Frank. Barney Frank. But he really made it such a bigger spotlight, which is right, amazing. Well I, well, I was happy with I was like, oh, thank God. I didn't want to be the gay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, great. You know, now like this will um, this will, you know, kind of be like a cherry on the top, and it's really just, you know, more about, you know, how we're advancing our movement. Great. And I'll just be like, oh, yeah, by the way, Officer Matt got his job back. Well, that was like the, the county paper, and then he goes up to me and goes, Matt, the New York Times is here. This is quite a story, and um, it's probably going to make it to the Times as well. And I said, come on, how, how – because you don't understand the magnitude of what just happened. Like, you usually don't take your job back. And the reason why is because of how difficult it might be on your return. And usually when people are out for two and a half years, they don't go to an Ivy League school, take on a degree which is going to benefit the agency just so they come back two years later. Like, you just don't do that. Yeah. And yeah. I said, well, I did. He goes, well, that's why it's going to make it into the Times. So I have a feeling why that he probably idea? called somebody and told them the story, and that's uh, how that happened. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This is such a great story. <laughs> I'm ecstatic. And then I think the last time I talked to you uh, was right before um, Gay Pride in New York. And you and there's like a police department float in the Gay Pride Parade? Oh, that was a, yeah, the uh, New York goal. Um, they have a, a few more let's say, uh, officers that are involved in their organization. Yeah. I mean, they'll have hundreds of officers that are, you know, all, all the, the whole spectrum of LGBT and their uh, heterosexual friends, you know, marching with them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's New York City. It's, it's very different. It's, it, but it's, it's something that you want to, you know, emulate, but there's really nothing quite like that, you yeah. know. That's wonderful. Um, and m many people say, you know, well, you know, they've been doing it for so many years. Um, you know, really, what is it anymore? And Barney even, Barney, um, <laughs> Congressman Frank, he got me saying it now. Like, like I know him on a first name basis. <laughs> um, he, he goes, you know, he, because he, he, he's such a personable guy. He goes, you know, Matt, you know, a million people marching down Fifth Avenue, that's like boilerplate to our culture. Them raising a pride flag in front of a police department after having an officer that was wrongfully terminated get his job back, that's movement. Yeah. So I said, all right. Yeah. It's your Harvey it's Milk moment. <laughs> yeah. Very well yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, he goes, trust me, I have a feeling that once you're, if you're ever, if you're going to stay with the agency, you're going to do good there. But I have a feeling that, you know, at some point you're going to be doing a lot bigger work. Um, you have, you have a, a vision and, and, and certain things that I think the, is going to be beneficial to a lot of people, not just within LGBT. Yeah. You know, it's just, there, there's so many people that can see this story as a, uh, not only a sense of inspiration or, you know, like when you're down and out, but just that, you know, it's a, it's a story of resilience and 
that you know you don't have to take everything you're given, and you can fight City Hall if you really think it's wrong, and you don't have to attack them. You can actually benefit both parties on your return. Yeah. You know, you were the glimmer of hope that not everything in the world is bad, and in fact, if you try hard enough, you can make it even better than it was. Oh, Officer uh, Matt, you are wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a lot. That look, that was totally. Congressman Frank, who told me that one. I can't say that one. Yeah, but uh, it's a mindset. Mine. It's a mindset that mm-hmm. um, I think I think you have in you, but you also it's a learned mindset that you have to keep persevering and and keep going and think about like the ultimate goal, um, not only for you but the next generation, and and that's so admirable. And oh, thank I'm you. very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> It's terrific. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. This has been incredible. Oh, well, I'm glad, I'm the, glad that you liked it. And uh, yeah. yeah, and the easiest interview ever. I mean, you just tell a terrific story. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big props to Greg Harrison for introducing us. Yeah. Oh yes, my best friend, and in fact, my other best friend, Jim Chonko, who went to Columbia University. Um, he was always an inspiration to me growing up. Jim was always this guy who, like, just he could like read through like a lot of incredibly difficult math and be like, yep, got it. And I used to be like, wow, it's incredible, Jim. Like, how can you do that? This is like astrophysics and, and, and you're studying all these math equations that, you know, pioneers within the math field invented. Like, how ingenious and how brilliant are you? And I want to be like Jim. <laughs> and I remember distinctly in undergrad, I, I was my valedictorian in undergrad, and I told Jim, I said, Jim, um, I did it. I, I was one in my class. He goes, man, I don't care. You're my best friend. And and I was just like, but Jim, you go to you know Cornell and Columbia. You know, I'm as smart as you. And he's like, man, I don't care if you failed. You're my best friend. <laughs> Aww. So what? twenty or what was it? Fifteen years later, twenty years later, I'm back in graduate school. I say, hey Jim, I got into Columbia and I graduated, and I'm now licensed as a mental mental health practitioner. And he's, man, I. I don't care. You're my best friend. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) where did you guys all grow up and what kind of water were you drinking then? There's so much talent Uh, and brain power within your crew. South Plainfield, New Jersey. South Plainfield. Plainfield. Wow. Wow. You got to go battle that. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you. It was great talking to you. It was great talking to you, too. too. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. We're going to try to turn this around pretty quickly. So um, we'll keep you posted uh, when it airs. And I'll send you a link um, that is kind of a permanent link that you can, if you want to use it for, you know, whatever purposes you want to use it, you know, feel free. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank thank you so much. Thank you. Hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah. Excellent. Hopefully, that would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Matt. Take it easy. Bye. Take, Take care.